For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne on him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in this dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's, someone's own illum- sorry, in- interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Our prayer, Lord, is as we have just sung, speak, O Lord. Each of us needs to hear your voice, even if we're doubtful, even if we're skeptical, even if we're not very hopeful, we need to hear your voice. Would you come to where we are and confirm your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we began a series that we're going to carry through the fall with the idea of being renewed by God day by day. What does it mean to be renewed by God? And we'll look at a range of things. Um, Renewed in our community life and our friendship and our views of sexuality, our views of service. But I want us to make sure that we understand the starting point for all of that. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is talking to that community about what it means to be renewed, how to live as new people. And he says this as a matter of instruction, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, in that you hear two things. He's not just saying, think differently. He's saying, think with God's Spirit differently. This is is a unique kind of thinking. 
The kind of thinking that is prompted by God's Spirit, and the way it occurs is God's Spirit working with God's Word. The Spirit of God working by and with the Word He has given. Now, if you, you have heard me say, if you've been in this community, that Christianity is a religion of revelation. That is, the Christian faith teaches that you need God to know God. I mean, this makes sense to us. You can get so far, uh, you know, I can know something about you from just watching you from a distance, but until we sit down and you open up your mouth, I don't know you. More so with God. You might learn something of God by looking at the skies and the stars, but until he opens up his mouth and he speaks to you, you can't know him. You won't know him. It's in the Bible that we learn no matter how poor our self-image is, that we are made in the image of God. It's by his word that I come to understand that I can finally stop using my life as a project of self-justification. I begin to live with a different motive. It's through the scripture that I understand that my work is a participation in his larger work. This is what we come to know. The Bible isn't casual for the Christian faith. It is critical for the Christian faith. And if you have a shaky or mistaken view of the Bible, you will have a shaky faith, a shaky relationship with God. Now, how the Bible is viewed has changed dramatically over the last couple decades. For a long time, uh, the Bible in our culture was regarded as a holy book, and even if people didn't follow it, they respected it generally. Today we find ourselves in a moment where many, many people would say the Bible is legend and it contains more than a few harmful teachings. You may be here today and say, that's sort of my perspective of the Bible. I'm glad you're here today. It's also become common belief that the writers were flawed and they were biased in what they wrote. They were writing things to sort of uh, fuel their agendas and opinions. The Old Testament God is a tribal deity that Israel invented to justify holy wars. Jesus of Nazareth was called Christ by his disciples because they wanted to believe he was the Son of God for their own movement. If you've taken a religious survey class, you've been hearing this stuff for decades. This isn't new. Not to mention, there's been a significant moral shift. Whether it be issues of gender or marriage, the Bible is seen by many, many people as outdated and intolerant. And so for the next two weeks, I want us to think about the Bible. This week, we'll be considering what I could say is the origin of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible the inerrancy of the Bible. And by that, I'm trying to address what you might call modern concerns. And next week, we'll look at the authority of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible, addressing postmodern concerns. But the reason we do this isn't because the goal is to believe in the Bible, so to speak. Bibliolatry, as some people would call it. That's not the point. God never wrote the Bible to stop there. It's so that you might and I might know the one that has revealed himself and that we might be renewed in our minds 
The way you're living right now has to do everything with the way you are thinking. I promise you that. Could God change your thinking by his word? Well, you got to get access to it. And there's many things that prevent people from even considering it. And so as we look at this, I'm going to follow just a basic outline. I want to look at popular belief, and I want to look at biblical belief. So let's start again with uh, looking at more of the origin and reliability of the Bible, and um, as well as modern belief. Three things under popular belief I want to talk about. Three things that mark popular belief in its view toward the Bible. One is life is impersonal. Two, opinion can never be fact. And three, religion is legend. Okay, those are the three things. If if those sound strange, I'll unpack them in a second. First of all, the belief that life is impersonal. Now, there are many, many questions that people have about the Bible. But this one, I would say, is foundational. It's fundamental, and it's this. Do you believe that life and you are a result of natural laws? Or do you believe life and you are a result of a personal creator, a personal God? Now, why is that so relevant to the Bible? Well, if life is a result of impersonal laws and chance, and whatever you want to fill in the bank, blank, matter, motion, space, whatever it be, if life is a result of those things, God does not exist, or if he's anything, he is a force that started the engine. And so the Bible, the idea that a personal God would reveal himself through a book is just impossible, if that's your starting point. Now, if, though, There's another way to look. If life isn't fundamentally impersonal, if rather life is really personal, what I mean is if you and I are not fundamentally DNA and molecules, but the fact that we think and we choose and we laugh and we love and we dream and we create and we aspire, if that stuff is primary and the physical part of us is secondary, then It seems to make sense to say how we got that way is because there is a greater personal creator. And if there is a greater personal creator, wouldn't it make sense that he would want to speak with us and be able to communicate with us? He could succeed in that endeavor. That's why that question is important. But there's implications about it. It also leads to a theory of truth that really is relevant to this question of the Bible. You know, naturalistic science, and I think there is a difference between naturalistic science and science, but science, we know, has a method that it understands to get truth. It's the scientific method whereby things can be tested, they can be measured, they can be quantified, they can be dissected. And it's a wonderful method. We benefit greatly from the scientific method. I'm glad that my doctor uses it on a regular basis. It helps me. The question isn't whether or not it's helpful. The question is this. It's one thing to recognize it as a tool in the toolbox, so to speak, a wonderful tool whereby we get truth. It's another thing to extend it to a life philosophy. 
It's another thing to say this is the overriding way the truth will be discovered, meaning there's one door into the house of truth, and that's it. And that's where many people would be, or it lingers, I would say, in the culture that we're in. And you see what happens there. Things that don't fit and submit into that testing, like moral values, like aesthetics, beauty, like prayer, like faith, like God, then get deemed non-truth or very suspect truth. When I was on sabbatical a couple years ago, I listened to some lectures by Daniel Siegel, and he is a leading scholar in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, trained at Harvard at UCLA. And in those lectures, he said, you know, we're learning something about the brain that was actually discovered thousands of years ago by religious people that meditation heals the brain. Meditation changes the brain. And what is that? What that is saying is there was a doorway into truth way before science discovered it and understood it. We must have a bigger picture or we won't even consider the scripture. But there's another way that this works into the Bible and that is language because the Bible is a book of language. And one approach of language goes like this. We need to take basically that view of impersonal laws and we need to impose it on language because then we'll understand what language says. So that means this idea that I can isolate something and take it away and sterilize it and separate it will lead to pure propositions and pure propositions, they will get us the truth. So therefore, any language that is tainted with religious belief or culture or tradition is suspect. It needs to be deconstructed. It needs to be filtered of that stuff. Now, of course, the irony is the person that is deconstructing it themselves is a biased person, right? You see how that's a problem. It's self-defeating. But thirdly, or rather secondly, so we're going to move. That's the impersonal law belief that's hanging out there. More quickly, two others before we get to the Bible and what it teaches. The current belief that opinion can never be fact. Uh, I recently read a uh, New York Times blog article by a philosophy professor, Justin McBrayer. Maybe some of you read this. It was floating around on Facebook. And the title of it was, Why Our Children Do Not Believe There Are Moral Facts. And uh, he wrote this out of an experience where he went to his son's second grade open house at their school. And he said, I walked in and I saw two troubling signs. One sign said, a fact is something that is true about a subject that, the, that can be tested and proven. The second sign I saw, he said, said, opinion, what you think, feel, and believe. Now, he said, I had a problem with that on several, for several reasons. One is, there are things that can be true that we have not proven. The earth was round a long time before it was proven to be round. The second thing is, it throws us into this either-or. And he talks about a conversation he had with his son. He said to his son, I believe that George Washington was the first president. Is that an opinion or a fact? And his son said, that's a fact. And he said, but son, I believe it. It's my opinion. It doesn't sound like it can be a fact. And he said his son just kind of sat there. It must be really hard to have a philosopher as a father. Right? Especially when you're in second grade, even though I appreciate him thinking that. 
The other thing, of course, is moral beliefs. There are things that we hold to be facts. You shouldn't murder people, you shouldn't discriminate. Those aren't proven in a lab, right? Isn't it true that the Ten Commandments can be just as much a fact as two plus two equals four? And so modern belief poses this idea of fact and opinion, and it prevents people from getting access to things like the Bible. But thirdly, another popular belief is that religion is legend. And here's where we move to our text, and it's really birthed out of the first two. And the reason it goes like this, because the writers of the Bible didn't have the scientific knowledge we have today They were slaves to myths and legends. They couldn't help themselves. Now, I want you to notice in our passage that Peter is talking about myths. Peter is teaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. And there are some people, false teachers, that are saying, you are teaching legends and myths. In fact, he says those that said that he invented cleverly devised myths. Now, you know what that word myth means in the Greek? Exactly what it means today. A myth, a myth is a story without a basis of truth. And so that tells us something right off the bat, doesn't it? As Peter addresses this, it addresses two questions. One, were the ancient writers, could they differentiate between myths and truth? Obviously they could because Peter's doing it there. But the second thing is this. When Peter is asked the question, did you, and by implication the other writers of the Bible, write legends and myths, he answers, no, we did not write that. I know what a myth is, and we did not write myths. Now, at that point, we can dismiss Peter, and I would say we can do two things. We can be patronizing, and we can pat the ancient people on the head and say, well, you know, You're doing the best you can. Or we can take a position of moral superiority and say modern people alone know what truth is and know what bias is. And that's a pretty arrogant thing to do. And so these three things are hanging out there in our culture, and they are informing whether or not people can even get to considering whether the Bible could be God's Word. And all of us have to recognize them. To whatever degree you're holding them, I want to challenge you to rethink them. And now what I want to move into is what does the Bible say about itself? First of all, the Bible tells us that we need the Bible. I mentioned that earlier. It's necessary. In Isaiah 55, you find God saying, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. It only makes sense. How can a finite being such as us come to know an infinite being unless that God makes himself known? I've already mentioned that point. But it also gets to a thought that is in our current cultural belief set, and that is this. A lot of folk, I think, essentially believe this. What I believe about God is God. What I believe about God is equal to God. My thoughts and God are the same. Two problems with that. One, I've already said, finite beings really don't have that place. But two, it's really self-centered, right? I mean, who of us here likes when someone would come up to you and go, you know something? This is who I think you are. In fact, 
this is who I believe you are, and I'm going to relate to you based on not who you are, but who I believe you to be. None of us would tolerate that. But essentially, this is what modern people do with God. And so, first of all, we need God to speak, but this is the wonderful news, that the Bible tells us that there is a personal God who is willing to speak, who is dying to speak to you and me. When you go to the book of Genesis, the creation of humanity, they're in existence barely a second, right, before God is speaking to them. The God who speaks, and this is the pattern you see throughout the Bible. You see God speaking first to individuals like Abraham and Moses. And because he wanted to go broader with his message, he then commissions spokesmen, prophets. Peter makes reference to it in verse 19, the prophetic word. You could go to Isaiah and Jeremiah and read God saying this to the prophets. I will put my words in your mouth. They weren't their words. I will put my words in your mouth. The Apostle Paul would write that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, the apostles and prophets. You heard in our Old Testament uh, reading where God said, Now Israel will know that I have spoken from heaven to you, to them. But because there wouldn't always be a prophet around, God's ultimate goal was to have his word written, to have it inscribed. You see this after he gives the Ten Commandments, we're told he wrote them with the finger of God. You could go to the book of Revelation all the way to the New Testament, and the apostle John meets the risen Christ, and Jesus says, write these things down. Now, why is this important? It's important because the written word is the word of God. You hear me? The written word is the word of God, God's voice. But it also tells us something, that God always intended his word to be written. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't a second thought. It wasn't because he had to settle for something less and it was a concession. God's plan was always to write his word down. This is what you find in the Bible. But it raises a question, what about the human writers? Did they really think they were writing the Bible, God's word? Did they they care about truth? Peter's passage gives us answers to that. You can look again with me. Look with me at this passage. The first one. Peter says... Knowing this, first of all, this means I'm going to say something fundamental to you, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from, that means originates out of, someone's own interpretation, meaning it wasn't our individual take on something or our thoughts or our agenda. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That means it wasn't like these writers would just go, I feel like prophesying today. I think I'll prophesy today. It wasn't by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are two complementary important truths said right there. Number one, the Bible is saying that God is the author of the Bible. That God inspired the Bible. The second one is this, that he didn't hit the override button when he used human beings. That God saw fit and in his plan to use people's backgrounds, their vocabulary, their style, even their cultural, back, their cultural tradition. 
As I said before, it was always God's plan to have his word written, and he took into account. The reason I tell you that is many people would say those things are liabilities. Those things that make us doubt God's word, the fact that human beings wrote it that had culture and tradition and style and vocab. God didn't see it as a problem. It was part of what he meant to do. And so again, Peter would answer the question, did we make this up or just sort of, you know, riff on our latest spiritual thought? We didn't. Now, you might choose again to say, well, you're primitive and you're deluded, but again, that's a position of moral superiority. But it's not just Peter that says that. 1 Thessalonians 2, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. We thank God constantly when you received the word of God which you heard from us, the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You can't get any plainer than that. Did the apostles and prophets think they were writing the word of God Well, I I don't know how you could be more explicit than that. And then you have the Apostle Peter actually saying of Paul's writings this. There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people twist, as they do the other scriptures. So the New Testament writers understood that their fellow apostles were writing God's word. Now, one of the reasons I want to bring this up is because there is a current philosophy that would say this, that God knew that he was going to have to settle for flawed and finite people. And so he knew that he was going to have a book that was going to have mistakes in it and lots of flaws, and he just sort of said, all right, that's the best I can do. Two problems with that, right? One, it explicitly contradicts what the writers of the Bible said themselves. So modern people might want to say that, but again, position of moral superiority. But the second thing is this. It embraces a thought mistake, a fallacy. Just because human beings err doesn't mean they err all the time. Just because human beings make mistakes doesn't mean they make mistakes all the time. Think about we have wonderful books produced by men and women, biographies, books on technology, books that are right, that are true, that are accurate. If we can produce books like that, cannot God, with his overriding spirit, cause a book to be produced without error? It seems that he could. But did the writers take history and truth seriously together? This is a regular question that we have. I was listening to a sermon recently by Tim Keller, and he was uh, citing the work of a, a scholar from Cambridge, at St. Andrews uh, called Richard Bauckham. And in this scholar's work, he's dealing with the question of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Now, we would say today eyewitnesses are, you know, really important, but yeah, yeah, they can have variance in their eyewitnessing, but still really, really important to us. Can you imagine how important that was in a day where there were no videos in a day where there was no way to actually verify through that way. Living witnesses were everything. And so, you might have sometimes noticed in the Bible, there are often random names that get mentioned. And you think, why in the world do we have these random names? There's the story of Simon, the man that carried Jesus' cross. And, and it's not only Simon's mentioned, but his son's names. Why mention his sons? Or the soldier that had his ear cut off by Peter. 
We get his name. Why would we get his name? It's because in that day, you could go to a living witness and ratify and corroborate that it actually happened. That's why the New Testament has those names. Last week, I talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you heard how the Apostle Paul talked about it. He said, Jesus Christ appeared to me. He appeared to the 12 apostles. He appeared to this one by name and this one. And then he said, by the way, there's 500 living witnesses today that saw him as well, in case you want to go ask them. This was an emphasis on living witnesses. You can go to the book of Luke, and the book of Luke would say, before I wrote my account, I went to eyewitnesses. And then I read what other people had written, and I verified what they had wrote was true. And then Peter here, of course, says to us, we were eyewitnesses. Now, ancient historians had some different practices. They felt free to paraphrase things. Peter paraphrases the transfiguration of Jesus Christ here. He doesn't give us every detail. They would use round numbers. They might arrange material thematically instead of chronologically. But there was no doubt about their commitment to truth. It was in their blood. I mean, after all, they believed that they had God's word. Even if you don't believe the Bible's God's word, couldn't you believe that someone that believed it would be real careful with it? Yes. And that same concern flowed into those that copied the manuscripts by which we get the original manuscript. Last week, I had the privilege of hearing from an Old Testament scholar, O. Palmer Robertson, and it's a guy that has studied the Hebrew Scriptures all his life. And he told us, you know, a, a group of ministers that in Jewish tradition, it was understood in the book of Psalms that after the writer copied the book, he would begin to count backwards words and letters. And if he didn't have the exact words and letters when he got to the middle, he tore it up and started again. That's the care that was given by those that copied the manuscripts. And that same concern, and by the way, there are very variants in the manuscripts, but it is a relatively small percentage when you think about these manuscripts. And many of these variants are pretty simple. It was a copy error. It's someone changing some grammar. It's someone adding a sacred names. And most Bibles today will have those in the footnotes. You can read how they're differently. You can get a study Bible or a commentary, and they'll tell you what it was. And one thing that really is mind-boggling, if you take some time to look at this, and I want to urge you to do that, one resource would be there's a Bible called the ESV Study Bible. There's lots of great articles about how the Bible came together in that. Whether you're a Christian here or not, you could get one of those and read. Or I can recommend more academic things for you to read. But when you think about the numbers of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament and how close they were to the original dates and events compared to other ancient documents we have and how far they were written from the original dates, it's not even close. I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of fragments and full documents of the New Testament in seven or eight of an ancient manuscript. God saw fit to preserve wonderful evidence for us by which to recover the original text and understand it. But lastly, this even extends into the early church. One of the big questions is, well, how did the early church discern the collection of books? And sometimes what we're told is, well, they kind of decided, they determined, and they basically did so on their own power basis. 
Like, we're going to get this one in because it bolts my power up, and we're going to keep this one out because it threatens my power. You read the church fathers, and that's not true. They understood their role wasn't to determine. Their role, rather, was to recognize, to recognize and receive what had enjoyed authority in the church. And that's what they did. If you read about this, you see that the four Gospels received universal acceptance right away. The letters of Paul, Peter had already crossed off on as, or, you know, checked off on as Scripture. By the second century, most of the New Testament had been verified. There were some other books that took a little bit of time. The book of Hebrews was accepted in the East and the West. But in Rome, it wasn't because it didn't have an author. We didn't know who the author was. The book of Revelation received immediate acceptance, and then people started to back up because it was exploited like it is today. But all these things that I'm putting before you, and I put a lot of evidence before you, the point is this. Claims that the writers of the Bible wrote legends. They didn't care about truth. Mistakes were made over and over. The Bible was changed over and over. The collection of books was a power political play. It's simply not true. We have breathed in the air of political, or rather popular opinion, for a long time. And I want to ask you before you reject the Bible, if you're here and thinking, I'm not going to read it, or if you're someone that's kind of, you feel like you go to the scriptures doubtful all the time, to do some homework and do some reading. But all of these things lead to the last point I need to make to close. There is a God who is willing, but there is a God who is able to speak. What you find in the Bible is this, that God's character and his word are seamless. You could go to Psalm 33 where it says, the word of the Lord is upright. Why? Because the Lord himself is faithful. The word of the Lord is true and righteous. Why? Because God is faithful. Don't we say this about people? My word is my bond. Your character can't be separated from your words. And so it only makes sense that God would have his word bear his character in truth and understanding. This is what Paul says when he says the word is God-breathed. He actually coins a phrase there that hadn't been used before, that God breathed it out. Now, many times the question is, well, what about all the other holy books in the world? Well, let me say this. Except for three, there are books that claim to be documents that will enlighten you, but they don't claim to be revelation from God in the same way that the Hebrew Scriptures do, the Christian New Testament, and the Quran do. These are clearly people of the book. They're reminded of that. Well, the Christian faith embraces the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you go to the Quran, it was written 500 years after the Bible. And the Quran actually was a critique of the Bible. Muhammad believed that the Scriptures were corrupted. When it taught about Isaac being the promised child, he said, no, it should have been Ishmael. There's no trinity. And Jesus Christ was, is a revered prophet in Islam, but they say there's no way a revered prophet could be crucified and go to heaven. That didn't happen. He was writing to critique what he thought were corrupted scriptures. And so you find that the New Testament canon is the primary book that God has been putting before the world for a long, long time. Not New Testament, the entire canon. So I'm going to stop by saying this. 
These arguments for the reliability of the Bible are necessary, but they're not sufficient. They're not sufficient. Until the Bible enters into your heart and, as Peter says, becomes a lamp shining in a dark place, until the morning star, which he mentions, Jesus Christ, the presence of the Son of God, rises in your heart. Until you read the Bible and you find that you read something in the morning and later that day there was a connection in your day that was unmistakable from what you read earlier. And those of you here, I know many of you know what I'm talking about. Until you read the Bible and you step out on a promise of God and see it confirmed in your life, until you read the Bible and then see the lens of the world and how it describes both the glory and the brokenness of the human race, until those things begin to happen in your heart, this will all just be trivial pursuit to you. It's when the Holy Spirit takes this word and he testifies in your own heart. I had a conversation in the spring I was uh, asked to go to one of our partner ministries, The Porch, and I was talking to one of their volunteer leaders, and somehow we got on the topic about the reliability of the Bible. And she said, you know, when I took those classes in university that deconstructed the Bible, they didn't rattle my faith because I had a bunch of years in proving the Word of God, a bunch of years where I had believed it and it had proved itself to me. It didn't rattle me. That's what God intends for us. You have an opportunity where God has revealed himself to you. Will you take it? Will you seek him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your care of your book. We thank you for your overseeing it for thousands of years. We thank you for the power that it exerts in the world across every tribe, tongue, and nation, across every religious belief, every culture and tradition. We thank you that you have codified it so we don't have to wait for a prophet to pass through town, that we can have your book right before us. Oh, Lord, would you rise up out of it, O morning star, and shine a light in every heart. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.